This is a special episode of the Immunology Podcast, Immunology 2023, Day 2. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rad. Welcome back to Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. Today we're back with another special episode to discuss highlights from the Immunology 2023 annual meeting taking place here in Washington, D.C. If you're at the meeting, be sure to drop by the Immunology Podcast booth in the exhibit hall to meet the team and win some prizes. You can also chat with us about your research and find out how you could be featured in a future episode of the podcast or take a selfie with us as you're probably seeing on our social media. Today we'll be discussing some of the most interesting research we've seen presented over the past 24 hours at the meeting. So if you were in another session and weren't able to attend the meeting, we've got you covered. We're going to be kicking things off in just a moment, but before we get to that... Join us at Stem Cell Technologies' upcoming workshop presented at Immunology 2023, where you can learn about new tools to optimize your B-cell research. Dr. Anthea Nice and Dr. Hitesh Arora will talk about feeder and serum-free expansion systems to obtain high yields of human and mouse B-cells for your downstream applications. The workshop will take place on Sunday, May 14th at 11.15 a.m. in the Exhibitor Hall Workshop Room 1. For more information on Stem Cell Technologies workshops or to learn more, visit Stem Cell Technologies at booth number 4011 or learn more at stemcell.com forward slash AAI. All right, we're at day two here. Oh, yeah. How are you liking it so far, Jason? It's good. It's good. It's, it's, it's a nice change of pace from some clinical conferences. Yeah, right? Get to nerd out a little more. I enjoy it. For sure. There's a lot of, so, there's a lot of place for nerding out in here. So many talks. So many smart people showcasing their research. That's great. It's really nice. And also, la- yesterday after we recorded, we had the presentation from uh, Mark Davis, which I thought was very nice. It was so cool to see all his pictures from his early time. And just, I don't know, it's nice to see those things, don't you think? Yes, I particularly enjoyed his review uh, that he was presenting from uh, his from feedback <laughs> from a student. Yeah, way back when it was. It was, <laughs> it was not a very good review, uh, ladies and gentlemen. But it, it would you know, earn an E. Yeah, it earned you that explicit E on a podcast. But it was hilarious, and I think he took it tongue in cheek. So that's good. Yeah, th- that was good, and I like that um, he's. Uh, his approach to chemistry, also some things cannot be. Uh, I don't think we are allowed to say, uh, but. Uh, oh, yeah, ke- chemistry no. is the central science, and it is a crucible of purity. Yeah, and no BS uh, discipline, apparently. Uh, that's funny. So yeah, so very nice. And today, so why don't you start off with some of the t- talks you went on? T- All right. Today. Well, I started with I'll do it with the first symposium, and I'll kick it back to you. So I went to uh, Major Symposia A, Peripheral Neuroimmune Interactions. But we had we had a couple guests from the podcast who are presenting again. So we have Daniel Musida. He was talking about the role of neurons after infection. And he showed that um, so you have increased colonic transport times after salmonella infection. And they were showing that um, you know you had neuronal damage in this case, but that hemolith infection led to tolerance and lack and kept the neurons intact. So a hemolith infection ahead of a salmonella infection presented the neurons in your gut from dying from the salmonella. Um, they demonstrated it was a progenitor of neurons and that there's a certain cluster of um, these progenitors that are sensitive to the microbiota using antibiotic and FMT studies. And then they did some cycling and lineage tracing to really demonstrate that like getting the bacteria back kept the center going. So there's this progenitor neuron group that's responsive, but then they're going to be tuned by the hemolith infection against the salmonella infection not to die. So I thought that was interesting. The next one from a former guest, Caroline Sokol, also was talking about allergic responses, talked a little about the skin like we had with her. Um, 
kind of some stuff she dropped into a little more was that allergen-induced itch requires gamma-delta T-cells and that there are microbial factors and skin allergen exposure combined help lead to who has allergies. And so she also demonstrated in some of the newer work that sensory neurons are what initiate the allergic immune response. If you chemically deplete the sensory neurons, you don't have an allergic immune response. So the nerves are in charge of your immune system's allergies. Oh, my God. Well, yeah, we, we, we've covered this in podcasts before, and I'm always so mind-blown by this concept. So then a couple other people. We had Esther Borges Florchim uh, now have their own lab, and they looked at how mast cell lipid mediators like leukotrienes promote food aversion. Essentially, kids will avoid eating things they're allergic to, even if the parents don't know it that they have an allergy, and this is also seen in mice with sensitization studies, and you can give them all the sugar you want as an additive, they still won't avoid it. It's not taste-dependent, but they haven't established if it's uh, smell-dependent or not. And they found that IgE antibodies, so depleting IgE removes avoid. So IgE is usually viewed as a bad actor in an allergy, but it's actually causing protection and avoidance mechanisms for allergens. And they showed that MYC1, known as GDF15 now, promotes avoidance, and that is dependent on IgE, and it's due to expression in the duodenum. Wow. The complexity just is, is, is baffling. And then we had a straight-up neurologist come in, neuroscientist come in, not neurologist, neuroscientist, Jessica Osterhout, talking about the neural circuits of sickness behavior and fever and fever generation. It used to be thought that uh, prostaglandin sensing led to thermoregulatory neurons driving things. That's why things like Tylenol and ibuprofen and aspirin reduce fever. But there's more than that. It doesn't look at cytokines. And it was a little hard to follow just from where I sat, and so I think some basal assumptions were being made that, that I couldn't quite track about neuroanatomy. But she was able to trace some of this to specific neurons, then use drug-inducible mice you know, for receptor-induced mice, so those dread receptors, I believe, to then do some stimulation and trace it to a neuronal circuit and show that cytokines also drive this pathway. It is not just Tylenol, you know, not just prostaglandins, which explains why prostaglandin blockade alone doesn't present fever in patients all the time. Okay. Very interesting. I guess a lot of implications for therapy, um, especially if, if patients don't respond to Tylenol and... Um, Ibuprofen. Is that, yeah, ibuprofen, that right? Is ibuprofen. Yeah, yeah. So then there's that. There's the IL-1 and IL-6 uh, inhibitors, which are used for um, cytokine storm now, which is like fever on steroids. And so that may be also why there's some effect there we see. Okay. Obviously okay. much bigger cascade in those cases, but it, yeah. it kind of lines up as a similar story. All right. So what did you get? From the, that was like the first half of my day. It was a very long symposium. Well, it was a very busy day. I have to say mine were a little bit smaller. So I went to the um, center of therapy session in the morning. Um, and I had to say, the, my highlights were um, there was uh, an interesting talk from uh, Emily Simon Rav from the University of Texas MD uh, Anderson uh, Center, in which they are using uh, CAR and K cells to target a CD70 positive osteosarcoma. And I think, I mean, NKs, using NKs for therapy or using CARs is not something necessarily new, but I think they were looking a lot into. Um, really understanding the expression of CD70, uh, uh, which um, is expressed in osteosarcoma cells, but it's very heterogeneous. Um, and although it has very low expression on tissue, which makes it a potential target for effort car therapy, um, it is a problem when you have low expression, then 
that usually has uh, becomes problematic when targeting with car constructs. But they show that their uh, CD70 car and uh, case cells are cytotoxic against osteosarcoma that express low CD70. So that's quite important. Um, and they even have this model in which they have three spheroids because osteosarcoma is bone cancer. So one of the complications is that it's actually hard because you need to get into the bone. So that's an added level of um, difficulty for, for car cell, uh, car T cells or car and K cells in this case to, f- to find their target. So they show in, they made three spheroids and they show that they also are really effective at killing uh, SCD70 positive cells in this, in this uh, structure. And um, they show that they can produce uh, um, cytokines and, also, it was interesting for me because I don't know I don't work a lot of NK cells, but um, and this is probably one of the limitations of NK therapy is that they seem to have limited persistence, more limited than T cells. So I wonder what exactly is like the approach when you were when you're thinking of NK therapies. Are you thinking of like cells that don't have a really long survival, like because CAR T cells will will home in lymph nodes and will persist for years, uh, but lose doesn't seem to be the case for in cases i'm always curious of how you grab how do you accept that or how do you work around that limitation so they they didn't have a solution but it's another way you know uh, i think in case cells can be very uh promising cells for for therapy what about for debulking or things and sometimes you just need to get the tumor a lot smaller that's true yeah es- especially like maybe not sarcomas but even then so you don't have to rip out as much bone but things around nerves right like if it's impinging on a nerve for some of these um, mesoderm cancers, like I can make it smaller without radiationing anyone to death, and then I can excise it when it's not entrapping the nerve. Yeah, for sure. Or for example, at, at my old institute, they was super. Uh, they had this uh, clinical trial with immunotherapy against uh, for sorry head and neck cancer, and it was so dramatic that some of the tumors they responded. They didn't know it was not a complete response. So they, the, the, the tumors did not disappear, but they became small enough that they didn't have to cut the half of the face of the poor patient off in order to remove the tumor. So that was already such a huge improvement. Right. They do that now with chemo and stuff, but it's obviously much more toxic. And so this could be a much more precision way of doing that and then coming in with the chemo and radiation and surgery and then finishing it off. Yeah. So, well, on another uh, car uh, uh, talk, this, in this case, CD8 CAR T cells. Uh, it was actually two talks from the same lab, from the lab of Terry Fry at uh, University of Colorado. So first we had Cole de Gaulier. So the, the talk was uh, titled Antigen Experience History Directs Distinct Functional States of CD8 CAR T cells. And they, so they are thinking of the problem of leukemia and CD22 targeting uh, CAR T cells. And in this case, these cardiacs do have issues with a CD22 low expression. So again, low antigen. So some, some of often is the case that CAR T cells cannot really don't work very well. And it's interesting because then they thought uh, they were comparing two different ways of making cars. Whether you have mice that were previously uh, vaccinated, I did. I have to. I have to admit, I missed the detail of how they make the cars, like it was, what was the vaccination against, but the idea that you, you are transducing with your car construct a population of T cells that are memory cells, that they have been activated and they're kind of not completely a naive population. And then they compare that with just, mice, just T cells that are just fresh from naive mice. 
and they see that they have like fundamentally so some fundamental differences in how they work and uh, the kind of responses that they mediate. They see also epigenetic differences as expected between what it would be a memory population and a naive population. Um, and but they see is basically this this uh, memory derived CAR T cells are better at targeting the, the low antigen leukemia cells. They're kind of more primed and they're faster at uh, attacking the, the tumors. They have this kind of enhanced cytotoxicity, but in the end, I think they have some issues with persistence. So it's not they're not perfect models, but they do seem to be better prepared as to, to attack low antigen expressing tumors and to uh, have like a first wave of, of, of effector function. Uh, so, in the end, it was um, in the if if the antigen was expressed at normal levels, so in on a situation in which you had higher antigen expression levels, then it was not so beneficial. Specifically, when you had the situation of low expression of your target uh, in the in the um, leukemia cells. But I what I didn't understand is the vaccine. I don't think the vaccine had to do with the final antigen. It's just about activating the cells because the, the specificity anyway is given by the car. It's just about making the cells activated and make them memory. So yeah, and then what else? That's also that session. Uh, we had some some CAR T cells that were uh, expressing uh, IL-33 and uh, superkine IL-22 uh, that showed... Uh, very interesting phenotype. Uh, they um, they saw they they was this this CAR T cells is from from the uh, from Dartmouth Asma Mohammed, and the interesting thing about her talk I think was the fact that they see that they wanted to try to make tissue resident memory cells, so they wanted to make this uh, cars into tissue resident memory cells, and that was proving difficult. So they they see that if they deplete CD4 cells before uh, injecting the, injecting the cars, that actually helps the 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 car this this car construct with IL2 and IL33 um, production to kind of populate the the, the tissues and there's a, a higher uh, percentage of tissue resident uh, memory cells in uh, in the in skin. So I think it's, they, 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 I don't think they was really clear why they think that's the case. I think she mentioned that maybe there's a de depletion of endogenous regulatory T cells. But I think I'm going to go and check out her poster tomorrow, at P poster 326, to see a little bit more. Because I, I like the idea, but I think I missed something. So, but it's interesting because now they're also this, nowadays these armored cars, they call, I think they call them the ones that are producing cytokines to uh, support their function. They're also very interesting models sometimes. And then the last, uh, the last one of the day was from uh, Menling Chen uh, from Rutgers, and in, th in this case she was looking at the role of CD69 again as another marker for residency for tissue residency in T cells. Basically, she correlated the expression of CD69 negatively to uh, CAR T cell expansion and um, function, basically. So they have a model of, 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 of CAR T cells against a human cancer antigen, and they show, they compare 
cars with C41BB and CD28, which we know are two different co-stimulatory uh, domains that are added to cars for, for their function. And they identify a CD69 low population. And then this population is the one that uh, correlates with CAR T-cell expansion, uh, and they, are, they, they express lower levels of what usually you know, ex exhaustion markers. And they uh, so they kind of conclude that CD69 is inhibiting proliferation in a tumor microenvironment, which would be this kind of tissue residence if you think the tumor is a tissue, and that CD69 knockout actually allows cells to accumulate more in a tumor microenvironment um, and to have enhanced function uh, functionality. So they they kind of suggest that CD69 is suppressing uh, T cell uh, proliferation and infector function in, in this in this particular model. So I think it's, it's cool uh, because CD69 is all usually associated with tissue residency. So I thought it was a little bit kind of strange, but uh, she made a, she had really nice data. So so that was my morning. Oh, wait, I know what I also think, think in the morning, one more, because <laughs> that was cool. Uh, I'm talking about NK, NK therapy for dogs. Car and sorry, NK therapy yeah, for for dogs. I, I when I uh, talk, I have to say it was a little bit out of my out of my kind of my realm of of knowledge. But it was cool that they treated dogs with cancer with melanoma with expanded NK cells, and it seemed to work. My, some of the cells really, some of the dogs really survive a lot more than usually expected. They normally get radiotherapy. And that they, you can basically expand these uh, NK cells from bulk PDMCs. And I didn't quite understand why NK cells and why, if you can actually expand NK cells from bulk PDMCs in humans. But I, I thought it was cool that they were treating dogs with NK cells for, for cancer. Not sure I feel about that one. Just because the cost. Yeah. I mean... <sighs> I mean, they were also old dogs. Most of those dogs were over 10 years old. The, what I mean is like the cost of a NK therapy. I mean, I guess people have the money they can choose to do yeah, it. Yeah, that's your dog. How much does your dog, is your dog worth for you? Probably not your mortgage. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, this, I guess this particular dogs were treated for free probably. On a, oh, I'm sure, right. But I'm just thinking about like the market for that. And I wonder like what that would, what that would do. Yeah. I don't know. Sorry, I'm probably being too practical for all the pet yeah, owners out there. Probably. But that's also very expensive. Yeah. All right. So afternoon, I went to Society for Mucosal Immunology talk. There were a couple there I really wanted to talk about that I got excited with. It's a microbiome land. So uh, first we had Gretchen Dahl, and she talked about um, some some mechanisms, some stuff I knew, but like went deep dive on it, which is that epithelial cells at baseline are not very uh, sensitive to TLR4, TLR5 signaling, which makes sense. You would not want your intestinal epithelial cells flipping around with LPS because they would just flip out all the time. Um, but they do know that the CRIPS, the stem cells themselves, are sensitive to it. And But if you then go and look at the microbial community, the CRIPT itself, where the stem cells are, are not colonized very much. And so they start doing the studies here where during damage you see bacterial infiltration, and that can then cause that LPS signaling to then induce regenerative pathways because, oh my God, there's bacteria here. We need to do something. So they, they kind of deep dive a little bit more of that pathway. It's already known. But then they also talk about how a specific type of E. coli protects from DSS colitis in a T cell dependent manner. Um, and this through CD4 cells doing all these depletion studies. And this works because it's priming these cells to induce regeneration early. So the E. coli can get to the crypt 
at baseline and prime them. So when you cut, stimulate those stem cells, when you hit it with DSS, which causes a wipeout of epithelium, they're immediately primed to regenerate. So that was neat. Then we had Kathleen Coop, um, who looked at the early life protection in the intestine. So necrotizing enterocolitis, all these terrible diseases that happen to babies. And she established some pretty cool stuff. So once she has an asynchronous cross-fostering system, where you can take pups from different moms at different times and then transfer them so that like you can, you know, have two moms and one mom being weaning or, you know, feeding via breast milk, some pups, they move other ones in later on because what they found is that the amount of EGF in breast milk wanes over time when the mother stops or start when she starts breastfeeding, it, it decreases over time. So day one higher than day 20 of breastfeeding so on and so forth. And so you can do these cross systems to like bring a mouse in at a certain point and see the effects of differential EGF in the breast milk downstream. What's interesting though, is that this EGF decreases over time and it also decreases in the stool over time. And she found that E. coli translates across the gut barrier via goblet cells in the absence of EGF. And that the gap formation, the, the, the lack of junctions between the E. coli or between the barrier is driven by this the lack of EGF. So EGF strengthens the junctions between cells, and particularly goblet cells, very early in life to prevent bacterial translocation, and that when you ablate this, you get more bacterial translocation, thus disease in very young babies. Secondly, we know that like when there's certain conditions going on, antibiotics can increase the outcomes of having a successful pregnancy and delivery later in life. But this is with penicillins, and they've not, and they've noticed a lack of the same effect with other classes. You're allergic to penicillins, you switch to something else called cephalosporins, which are a cousin, but the allergies don't translate necessarily. And so that's the first thing you go to. And they were able to establish that the IgA levels in breast milk are reduced uniquely by cephalosporins. It doesn't affect the dames. Um, it decreases IgA notably specifically to E. coli. And so you lose that protective offense against E. coli. And they also were able to establish in the same talk, looking at some other things, that maternal IgA limits group B strep. So that the amount of group B strep that transmits into the baby is based on the, um, the maternal IgA, or IgA in this case. So just some interesting mechanisms linking breast milk, growth factors in it, downstream enteric pathology. All right. So that was, that was a good chunk of my afternoon. Saw some posters. Shout out to a couple of groups at South Carolina. I couldn't catch their name, um, but they, they had some really cool posters. They, they actually, there was their very first conference. Aww. They didn't have any cards or anything. Aww. So, but they were, they had some really cool uh, studies on um, inflammatory bowel disease and neuroimmunology in relation to depression. Oh, wow. Okay. So that was really neat to see some cool stuff. All right. What's the, the, the takeaway message from them? Takeaway is that there's this receptor called the aryl hydrocarbon receptor, which is a tryptophan receptor, and it modulates the depressive response in mice and when IBD disrupts this pathway to lead, and that's part of what causes the more depressed state in patients, which we know have IBD, but then the mouse models. And then other work I've seen even recently at another conference um, showed that it's transmissible. So if you take depressed, you take IBD or UC stool, stool with ulcerative colitis, you know, from ulcerative colitis patients and put it into mice or rats, they develop anxiety and depression due to decreased oral hydrocarbon receptor activation. Wow. I mean, gosh, that's the, the implications of such studies are just 
mind well clinically it's very well established people with ibd have depression even above and beyond their level of morbidity like you said like it's a sucky disease so you're going to be more depressed but beyond that there's high levels of depression than you would even anticipate necessarily from that gosh your your bacteria are giving you depression all right talking about bacteria but not depression i just want to highlight i went also to the niaid a symposium uh and i'm just gonna highlight the talk from Barbara Rareman, uh, in which she also works so she works at the NIH at the I think is National Institute for D- this diabetes and something and kidney at NI digestive disease diabetes yes diabetes and kidney disease and IDDK land of, land of GI goodness that's the one so I just thought it was very interesting because she was talking about widening widening of mice just which is basically transferring microbiota from wild mice into the lab to to study into an inbred strain so that you you get the genetic part kind of controlled and so basically she made the point i think we all know that my laboratory mice are very clean and uh, they're basically a completely different meta organism compared to wild mice from the wild and so they uh no, they they see them themselves. Is they brought they brought mice from outside. They look at their feces and they compare the composition of the microbiomes. Completely different. And so, what they do in order to work with mice with genetically identical mice in the lab is to transfer the microbiota. What they do is they take wild female mice and they uh, transfer like black six embryos to these mice. They do this pseudo-pregnancy thing, and then they transfer the embryos. So you get wild, you get black six mice being born to wild mothers, and then they they kind of acquire the microbiome from that, uh, and very early on in life. So that really uh, seems to be the best way to um, model the the wild microbiome acquisition. And unsurprisingly, they find a lot of differences uh, with lab, with the regular laboratory mice. Of course, there's much more diverse microbiome. There are fungi, there are viruses. And this makes, of course, their life very complicated. They seem to have a completely different facility for these mice. Uh, they also were very concerned about whether, you know, these mice would get contaminated from like the bi- microbiome of the like, laboratory mice, so they kept them very separate. Uh, and this is not reg- normal, um, good practice, I think, in general. And so they, there's also funny because they they looked at which it would be kind of the stronger microbiome. They co-housed a wild wildling mouse, so a wild a mouse with a wild microbiome, then a laboratory mice with a pathogen-free microbiome, and then a germ-free mouse. And basically what they see is that all of the mice end up converging on on the microbiome of the wild uh, type. So it completely overtakes both the germ-free, but also the pathogen, specific uh, pathogen-free mice. And and I think she makes a really important point of how this using this mice might be very important for some of the drawbacks of preclinical studies in mice, and she makes the the case of a uh, uh, of a particular uh, situation in which 
the use of an, an anti-CD28 uh, monoclonal antibody uh, in lab mice was shown to expand regulatory T cells and thus, thus downregulate immune response. So it could be used for, for people with uh, autoimmunity or with inflammation. And actually, when they tried that in humans, it was a disaster in the sense that it resulted in a cytokine storm in every patient that got it uh, in the phase uh, one trial. So really was a huge um, dis disconnect between the mouse study and the human study. And so they showed that with this mice, in which you have this wildling mice, you actually see no increase in regulatory T cells if you inject them with anti-CD28 antibody, and you do see an increase in the release of cytokines, which makes it probably a better model for humans. And if the experiments had been done in this mice, they probably humans would have never been tested uh, with it. And also, also he, she made the point of, in the case of a high-fat diet, wilding mice le gain less weight. This is kind of has been a um, known thing that if you um, feed laboratory mice with high-fat diets, they get fat and they get fatty liver and it's, it's terrible. But wilding mice get gain less weight. And it does seem that it's, this is because they have a higher energy expenditure, which apparently is mediated by a higher amount of brown fat and body temperature. And that is how the mice pick up less weight. So again, this seems to be important. These kind of things are probably closer to the human situation. Uh, so she just highlighted the importance of having these models. And I thought it was, was very interesting. Um, I'm, you know, a, a food for thought. Very interesting. I'm I'm stuck on the how do you get the wild mice? You just go to the fields and you put some mouse traps with some cheese in them. I don't know. She said I think I think she said she the the student or the postdoc picked it from the fields in Maryland, something like that. <laughs> so yeah, that was I think that was it for today. Oh, I also attended. We had a very interesting talk about uh, science communication and discussing your 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 research with uh, in, in a public kind of a with with um, press or with uh, in a, a podcast host. Yeah, no, with journalists or, or how to for, uh, broadcast your your science and your science uh, how to um, how to engage in the scientific discussions. And that was Christina, our producer, was there also talking about how to bring your science to a podcast, which is what we do here. So it was very nice. We're very proud of her. So a uh, shout out to uh, Christina, uh, our, our producer. And I think it's very, it was very nice. But a lot of nice points made about how to interact with journalists, how to bring your point across, and how important it is for, for scientists in general to contribute to the public discourse. All right. Well, with that, we'll be back in about 24 hours with another late-breaking episode. Oh, yeah. So this brings us to the end of day two of the Immunology 2023 conference and our second episode of the special edition. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Podcast to find out what we're up to at the meeting and visit us at the Immunology Podcast booth on the exhibitor floor where you can get a prize and find out how you could be featured in a future episode of the podcast. Check back here tomorrow for another episode recapping day three of the meeting. See you then. <laughs>